to season two of the Young Player Wellbeing Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Brad Fullerton, alongside fellow co-host, Tony Capasso. Both Tony and I are practicing trainee sport and exercise psychologists and use our experience and knowledge to bring sports psychology and wellbeing concepts to life. But we don't do this alone. We speak to highly specialised guests who also share their personal and professional experiences with wellbeing and sports psychology. On the pod, we encourage listeners interested in all things sport to tune in whilst we provide insight on what working in the world of sport is like. We ask our guests the right questions to provide you with a deep dive into their specialised area of expertise and hope that after listening to each episode that you've taken something away with you. We want to redefine what making it in sport looks like. We hope that by speaking to guests who have made a successful career in sport, we can do just that. Now, let's get into another episode of the Young Player Wellbeing Podcast. We hope you enjoy. Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of the podcast on what is, I don't know if you call it Derby Day, but certainly the old, is it the oldest rivalry, Tony? I don't know. Basically, Scotland are about to spank England tonight. I probably shouldn't have said that because I realised by the time this is out, the result will be finished, but I'm feeling confident. Tony, what are you saying to it? Yeah, I think this week I might be really pulling on my uh, dual nationality and saying I'm Italian. Um, but we'll see how it goes. I'm a bit a bit nervous for England because Scotland have been absolutely flying. Obviously, took out Spain recently. So I'm to be honest with you, I'm excited to to watch it tonight and see what happens. But a bit nervy, a bit nervy. Although I must say it's a bit of a bigger occasion for the Scots than it is for the English. You know. Yeah, I've kind of shot myself in the foot because, like, as you're speaking there, I'm starting to feel a bit doubtful. But we'll. <laughs> Onto the matter of hand, uh, we've got Louise Paul on the podcast today. So, like myself and Tony, Louise is a sport and exercise psychologist in training, but she's also a sports psychology consultant. And at the moment, she's working at various national governing bodies in sport across the country. Louise, how are you? Hello, I'm great, thank you, and thank you very much for having me on your podcast. That's okay. Did I nail the the intro? I, I know you're like a man, a woman of many talents. Sorry, I should say, but did I miss anything out? That was fantastic. I'm sure we'll get into all the little bits and bobs as we go. Good, cool. Looking forward to it. So, just as usual in the podcast, we just get straight into it and let you introduce yourself. So, if you could just tell us a bit about your experiences in sport growing up. You know, what sport did you play? How did you get into it? And the sort of level that you played at. Yeah, absolutely. So I'd love to come on here and say that I was some really high up, high achieving athlete, but um, I definitely was not. Sport was something that I had to try really, really hard at as a kid. Um, I did pretty much everything. So I got thrown into hockey, rowing, um, dancing, um, yeah, everything that my parents could just throw me into. Um, but I wasn't very naturally very good at anything. Uh, my hand-eye coordination was terrible, so I had to just work really hard. Um, but then I got into skiing, so that was um, I started that when I was about eight or nine. 
Um, and then from there, I went on and did um, like my qualifications and became a ski instructor. So um, have been doing that for the past like 12 years or so and managed to travel the world doing that, um, which has been something that's brought a lot of excitement. But then I suppose taught me quite a lot about the well-being and sports psychology stuff as well. So, yeah, a bit of a random background and definitely don't um wouldn't ever call myself an athlete but I suppose after that I've then done a lot of kind of competitions I've tried to do a lot of like um running races cycling races and triathlons um and just things to really push myself like more recently so yeah always willing to do competitions and yeah push myself out of my comfort zone that uh, cool it's actually quite refreshing because I think the last two guests we've had on have been well, one was a professional footballer, the other was very close to being that. So it's been, it has been football heavy and we do like to talk football on the podcast, of course, but it's refreshing to have a different sport. I don't think we spoke to anyone in skiing yet, Tony, and you're just casually dropping in that you're doing triathlons for a laugh. So that's pretty, pretty yeah. interesting. They're definitely not a laugh when you're doing them, I'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> but is that just something you've always wanted to do or? Yeah, it was just on the bucket list and I liked cycling and running and then I was like, yeah, do you know what? I could just do some swimming as well and then realised I wasn't that great at swimming and putting all three together is really hard work and then I'd already signed up for the event and it was too late. So, um, yeah, great learning experience. <laughs> yeah, I have to say I was the exact same. I did triathlon, well, I did triathlon when I was a lot younger. And it was running and cycling. I thought I'm, I'm, I'm alright at these. I quite enjoy them. And then the swimming side was just brutal. But I'd say, although you didn't say you're an athlete, doing a triathlon, no matter how, you know, competitive it was, really like teaches you about mental resilience in sports. So you know, you definitely got a good insight there. Absolutely, yeah. especially when there were so many hills on the run. That was uh, <laughs> my real test for resilience. <laughs> yeah, fair play. I could do the running, but the cycling, if there's any hills involved, nah. And the swimming is just absolute nah as well. So I'll just stick to casually playing football, I think. But it's nice to see you've done that as well, Tony. You've done it all, haven't you? Um, yeah. Moving yeah, on. on sports. <laughs> um, Louise, so you mentioned there that you took part in a lot of different sports and still kind of are competing in different sports, but... What have been your main experiences with well-being uh, and psychology in those sports? Yeah, definitely. Like overall, um, I find sport is my go-to to like actually manage well-being just as a general thing. Um, I love getting out um, to exercise, to look after myself and get into the right mindset. Um, I suppose more specifically from a psychology point of view, um, I find it really like helpful to put myself in challenging situations and you you see your brain working in a totally different way when you're under high pressure and I just I love that feeling and now that I know more about it I can actually help myself a little bit as well which really helps um so yeah I think actually seeing the power of sport and the impact it can have on your well-being is amazing but actually being able to then use psychology to push yourself to new limits and um, actually have the grit and determination to actually train for some of these things um, has been my personal experience um, and I try to kind of instill that in what I do as well. Yeah that's interesting so do you give now that you've obviously done the masters and you know psychology of sport is it something that you consider a lot more when you're training for events like this and are you able to actually implement stuff into your own training reg regime like as a sports psych? and an athlete, I mean. 
Yeah, I mean, I would love to say that I do it every time, but I think we all know that it's not as easy to do as it is said. So um, I definitely do try and uh, like apply some of the stuff that I would use with clients, um, especially around like goal setting, um, because that you can be quite lazy. I think when you're doing your own goal setting, it can be quite easy just to be like, yeah, I've got a plan. But until you actually write it out and are quite structured with how you do it, it can make a difference. Um, and certainly I've used things like um, like box breathing and different things that I've applied on like competition days where I'm feeling a bit nervous and um, I'm definitely a bit more stressed by the pressure. So I have applied it. I think it's still a work in progress as it is for all of us um, because yeah, it's certainly not really easy to do even when you teach people to do it all the time. So. Yeah, yeah, no, that's fair. I think uh, Tony, make me think back to a couple of workshops we've done in the past with some of the players on goal setting and it's like, oh it's January so this is my goals <laughs> this is when I'm supposed to follow up on it honestly I couldn't even tell you what my goals were back then so it's I think we preach yeah. it a lot but yeah I agree with Louise there's definitely room for me to be doing stuff like that a lot more in terms of, like my own football and like in the gym and stuff like that as well yeah definitely I think if you think back to that workshop wasn't I the only well-being coach that had actually hit his his goal yes you you were <laughs> it's such a star aren't you it's Although nice. I did, uh, I did drop off heavily like about a month later, so needs to get back on top of it. But it's so true, you know. You do use a lot of the sort of skills that you learn through psychology. A lot of time, I'm thinking, hmm, I should really implement that myself, actually. Yeah. Um, well, you feel maybe you feel a little bit like a hypocrite because you're saying to someone you should definitely do this, and you've had that little internal reflection. You think, hmm, maybe I should also do this as well. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Always room for improvement. Yeah. <laughs> So Louise, after you know we met on the the masters program in like 2019, and from there we kind of kept in contact loosely. And I know that you were doing some work in gymnastics. So could you tell our listeners like was that associated with sports psychology, and what were some of the the challenges that you faced within that role? Yeah, so um, my role at gymnastics was working in performance operations. So I was working with um, trampoline and rhythmic. Um, and that essentially, it was probably not as sports like focused, but it was more around like the logistics and planning for each Olympic cycle. Um, so it was really interesting because it really showed you like the inside of like like governing bodies and how we pre prepare for Olympics. Actually, how much is involved in that and like my job really varied there it was um it could be some days i'd be designing leotards and um organizing kit for like major competitions and then other days i would be um like managing flights and booking hotels finding out where athletes could eat um so there's so much involved because obviously there you're taking hundreds of athletes abroad all the time so um it really varied from day to day um but I suppose key challenges within that, I think the time that I was there was during COVID. So that itself um, presented some fantastic challenges. Um, and probably the hardest part was that professional sport didn't stop. And um, we were still having to go to these major competitions, even though the world was in a standstill. So like flights were getting cancelled, like left, right and centre. Um, we had to have like all the athletes do all the COVID requirements um, when like competitions were running. So it just added so much. And I know that everything else going on in the world was a lot worse, but it added a lot of pressure to manage and um, 
yeah, there was just still so many athletes and I suppose they still had to prepare for the next Olympic cycle and it was actually, I suppose, mid-Olympics when it happened. So, yeah, there was a lot of challenges with that and um, I think overall in, like, high performance, the roles can be very full-on and long hours and managing, like, big teams. So, um, yeah, it was a really exciting job because I was always on the go and managing different uh, projects and competitions so really exciting but yeah very full on yeah yeah and just for any listeners I think Louise you mentioned that Olympic cycle there is that how like Olympic teams work then they work in like these four-year cycles yeah pretty much the um whether it's a commonwealth sport or an Olympic sport or both they'll then prepare for four years and essentially we would sit down straight after like the last Olympics, write out our full four-year plan and then we would build up the support that we needed for that four years and we would then implement that. So um, yeah, that would be working as like a team just to pull in literally everybody we could. So working with the psychs, working with performance lifestyle, nutritionists, everyone that we could to try and make sure that we will achieve our goals at Paris and we could put that plan and hit the ground running with it, really. Yeah, it sounds like working in a huge, almost like the biggest multidisciplinary team that I think I've ever heard of. And when when we talk about that, we, we mean like, so in football, that might be you've got the coach, but the coach works with the S&C, work with the players, you might work with the scientists, the psychologist, the doctor, etc that all make up the one big team so that sounds really interesting that you got the opportunity to work for like a national governing body on an olympic cycle it surely doesn't get much bigger than that that's pretty cool it was exciting yeah uh no nice and and probably moving on towards we've got a couple we've got a lot more questions for you louise so just prepare you know um mm-hmm. so obviously you're a trainee psych like like myself and like tony um, you've worked with both male and fe- female teams, something that I certainly haven't had the opportunity to do yet. Do you think your approach has to differ when you work with males and females? Um, yes and no. I think actually my overall approach stays like very similar. Um, and it's more how I interact that probably mm. like changes a little bit. And by that, I mean, I think every female team that I've worked with, they're a lot more open um, to the support and it's quite easy to build a rapport. They generally want to kind of chat things through and a more kind of counselling approach works really well with them. Um, Whereas often I went into male teams and they want quick fixes. They don't really want to tell you about everything else that's going on behind it. Um, So it's slightly different in how I probably would deliver and build rapport um, with the different teams um, but that being said I think it's not a one-size-fits-all I think actually sometimes like you do go into male teams and they really want your support and um, I've been doing some work with some referees recently and they're predominantly males and they couldn't like have soaked it up anymore they just want you totally embedded they want to know what you've got to offer and they're really open and transparent so yeah there's definitely not a one-size-fits-all but I think for overall like generally there is a little bit of a difference but I think as long as you're like you go into really honest and transparent and going with your approach you just need to adapt your delivery to what they need at that time. 
Okay, respect that answer. I, I just want to know more about the work with referees because I found out that sports psychologists could work with referees when I was on the Masters programme. So this could be the first time that any of our listeners have heard about this and referees have certainly been in the news as of late, all the stuff that's happening with VAR and changes in rules, etc. So how does a sports psychologist work with a referee then? Well, I found it a really eye-opening experience because actually I didn't quite realise the extent of how physical being a referee is and how mentally draining being a referee is. So not only are they managing, like actually having to run and be at every single place, but make decisions when their heart rate's so high. And I didn't quite link the physical element with the psychological element. And um, when I started kind of researching into it a bit more, I then kind of realised how impactful that is for them and the additional support that they will need. And and you're, that's not even including the conflict that they receive and the pressure on referees to make decisions and snippet like moments. So um, I think it can be really embedded within referee programmes and um, I think it's really beneficial for, for them. Like we started, first of all, focusing on managing conflict, um, how to diffuse that in the moment and how to not let that impact the rest of the game, um, but then also how to kind of manage pressure as well. Um, but a lot of it has been around kind of decision making and how they can manage actually feeling physically exhausted, but their brain being switched on. So really interesting and definitely a really cool avenue to go down and I hope that more referees like groups really do start to embed sports psychology really. It's quite interesting how obviously uh, you've supported a ref referees as a psychologist, but because we had um, Natasha Bernardi come on a couple of weeks back and she actually, it was refereeing that got her interested in sports psychology. So looking at how people react on the pitch and that um, and having to deal with yeah different players' emotions and stuff. So it's interesting little crossover that actually being a referee gave her the insight into what sports psychology is about and now you're supporting referees using your knowledge in sports psychology so yeah it's a really interesting crossover there. Louise just a follow-up to that like as you're I don't know if you had an opinion on referees before maybe as strongly as I, I did but like my opinion like on referees has certainly changed once I've learned more about psychology and like you know I certainly have less bias towards them because I understand that they're actually doing a job as well. If before I was maybe like they're just here to like ruin my day and just like send players off and just make it yeah. about. But certainly my bias has changed. It's just been the same. Absolutely, and I think I wasn't quite aware of like how. I think sometimes it's very easy to make a referee like be the person on the sideline. They don't really have any feelings I kind of I think I forgot that they are a person at the end of the day they are a human and for me it's been really interesting seeing that side of it and seeing their experiences and actually how they don't take that home or how they do take it home a lot of them it does impact their life so um it's trying to have that separation so that they don't have a long-term impact from it really yeah that's so interesting. We probably went off on a bit on a tangent there, but it's not very often you get the chance to talk to someone who's worked with referees. So no, I appreciate that. Um, and we've probably tapped into it a little bit there, but what's the difference between sports psychology and performance psychology? Because these are two words that are two terms that are thrown around 
quite a lot, I would say, certainly in the sports psychology uh, community. So is there a difference between them? And could you explain that to our listeners? Yeah, I can certainly try. I think performance psychology is supporting people to be the best that they can be in their chosen endeavour. It's not necessarily specific to sport. So that could be um, performing the best that you can in the workplace and um, in whatever you want to do, like an expedition um, and performing to your best ability. Um, And I think it can include a lot more like your actual personality, identity, your core values, which we definitely pull into sports psychology. Um, But I think it includes anything that really promotes high performance and also impairs like your consistent performance where sports psychology is more of a subdomain of performance psychology, in my opinion. And um, we facilitate the like performance and uh, well-being and enjoyment in sport. Um, and obviously that includes all of our coaches, our athletes, parents and support staff. So very much sport specific where, um, yeah, your performance psychology is kind of the overarching theme of it. Um, but I'd be very interested to kind of get your guys' opinion, whether you have a different view on that. Um, because have you experienced it quite different in what you guys have been doing so far? For me, I think it, I think you can't have sports psychology without performance psychology as you said there I think they overlap quite strongly um, and I do think as you said it is a subdomain um, and yeah I think the realms of psychology I think it's why it can be so confusing for athletes to sort of know who to turn to for what is because it, it's it's almost like a rabbit hole you start going down it and you realize there's all these different twists and turns and different directions you can take it in um and the trouble is it is very interpretive um so i would argue that within sports psychology i I do a lot of performance psychology but i wouldn't say i cover all the areas of performance psychology if that makes sense bit of a yeah around the world answer there yeah louise you summed it up and the word that tony's used it's like sports psychology is a subdomain of performance psychology totally agree with that but do I feel comfortable enough as a trainee sports psych to go and work in like full time environment with like a high performing team of like chefs or businessmen? I'm not sure at this point that I quite do. So for me, in order to work in that space, I would have to become more competent in sports psych and the performance elements of that. Now I think on this program that we work on, when we talk about performance, it's not just performance in football we also talk about it in like school for like yeah. like the you know the young players so yeah communication is important on the pitch but how can you be transferred to other areas of your life like i.e school and potentially later in life it's work as well so i think there definitely are elements of it that we've, we've drawn upon it's just probably something i've not given quite as much conscious thought to don't know what yeah. we thought about that louise did we answer that sufficiently <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Sorry, I threw a question back at you, but no, I would agree. And I think dare you. You are already doing it all the time, right? And I think that's what's so amazing about like sports psychology is that actually it does take like teach individuals these transferable skills, and it sounds like you're already doing performance psychology within that. So, um, and I suppose an interesting one that I found is like actually I've started working 
um, with tradespeople um, and from any trade um, background. And actually, that I've done a lot of performance psychology with them because it's obviously not sport specific. But actually, what's interesting is a lot of the it's a lot of the same interventions that you do, a lot of the same conversations because they're struggling with things like confidence, they're struggling with things like pressure. Um, and it's very similar, but it's just not on a football field or it's just not like in, on a netball court. Like it's just, it really varies where it is. Um, but actually the key learning and the application and building that rapport with the person is still exactly the same. So yeah, it's definitely a very cool area to work in um and like it definitely crosses over in lots of ways yeah it's very interesting because of, of um my dad runs a hair salon we've constantly have conversations around you know how he runs his team and you know uh, if one of his staff perhaps he thinks that they you know why are they different to other people so yeah I think com compared to Brad I, I feel like I've had I've maybe had those discussions with my parents a bit more like my, with my mum's work she's in charge of a team so we're always having those discussions as well so it's, it is very interesting um, yeah. but I think like Brad said I think because all of our learning has very much been sport specific um, and I'd say perhaps in the last year we've been making sure that we're relating all of our well-being um, coaching with the with the young players back to their life in general to make sure we're, we're giving that holistic support um i think it's yeah only been the last year i've started thinking about it in general life rather than just in a, a sport specific domain so yeah an interesting conversation for sure oh, sorry i'm just i'm laughing just because uh my dad's a joiner and uh <laughs> He owns his own business with my uncle, and then my my wee brother works for them as well. So I'm just like laughing at the thought of going in and doing some sort of like workshop <laughs> with the three of them to try and improve performance. It's just funny. Uh, there you go. Yeah. That's your avenue now, Brad. You can go. Yeah. No, well, hopefully they're listening. Just give me a bell. I'll sort it out. I need some class. <laughs> <laughs> um. No, okay. Uh, that's really interesting, though. Uh, but the difference between sports psych and performance is something that I've not given much thought to and um, you've you've helped me understand it better. So I suppose, I hope our listeners have done the same. Um, so just moving on, you obviously work individually uh, with athletes in loads and loads of different sports. So if, maybe even if you could talk about what some of those sports are, uh, that'd be interesting for our listeners as well. But also you you spoke about you work in confidence a lot. It seems that athletes come to you to help them improve their confidence. So could you give us some examples of how you have supported athletes in doing that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, again, yeah, the sports have really varied. Um, I've had a few figure skaters, uh, netball players, footballers, um, runners, um there's been a few different ones in there as well um cricketers uh cyclists anything they really vary um so it's fantastic to get an insight to loads of different sports as well and actually the different challenges that they face in different sports and in competition um i think what i've found working with a lot of them is that confidence seems to be one of the key things that comes up with them and that actually they feel like they can't compete well or their competition really depends on where their confidence levels are at. Um, so a lot of the time I'm working through discussing confidence with them. And what I try to do is 
actually allow them to know that that's really normal, that confidence does fluctuate pretty much all the time. Nobody feels confident in any walk of life all the time. And if they do, they're probably not telling you the truth. So um, I really try to normalise it, first of all, and allow people to know that what they're experiencing is really normal and it's okay to feel like that. Um, and I always relate it back to a battery and I always talk to them about how our phone battery, we when it's got full charge, it's functioning well, it's like you're able to take photos fast, it works really well. It's exactly like you and your confidence. When you're feeling confident, you're able to play well, you're able to communicate well. But the second that you forget to charge your phone and it runs out of battery, it starts to let you down and you don't. it doesn't work as well. And it's exactly like how we feel when we don't let our confidence or we, it falls apart a little bit. Um, and I try to play on that and use it as what is a confidence drainer? So what drains our phone not charging it? Um, what drains us? getting negative comments from people of course that's going to have a knock-on effect on your confidence and like perhaps having a bad game again you're probably going to feel pretty low in confidence but then I try to flip it and say well what do you think makes you feel more confident what charges your confidence and gives it a boost and usually it comes from things like positive feedback playing well being able to pass well with the ball and I really just try to work with each client to really capture what where their confidence comes from, what makes them feel more confident day to day. Um, and again, pull on different experiences. If you're feeling really rubbish in your sport and not confident in your sport, where are you maybe feeling better? Are you confident in school? Are you confident in work? How can we build that into build or boosting our confidence in sport? Um, so yeah, I suppose it's trying to really explore that and then when we've done that often it comes down to they feel like elements of when they feel like they lack confidence they feel like they lack control and it comes down to a lot of things um feel overwhelming and they're then worrying about things that are totally out with their control so things like the weather that's quite common that they're like well oh i feel really nervous i feel like i've not got any confidence and i'm stressed about the weather but actually, that's when we start to then explore what can you control in your performance and what can't you control and how can we focus on what we can control? Um, and I think like things like how you stand going out um, onto the pitch is a perfect example. How you communicate with your teammates. You might not feel the most confident that day, but if you have staple things that you fall back on, that you go out with your shoulders back and like you look confident and you feel confident other people are going to believe you're confident and I wouldn't say it's faking it till you make it but I think it's definitely um going out with your go-to like things that you do to boost your confidence um it's probably where I get to with clients and ho hopefully build their kind of confidence bank that they can go out there and boost their battery every time yeah I love that idea, the, the battery. Um, that would work quite well, I think, with some young players out there. So thanks for that, Louise. And it's all process stuff, isn't it? Like when you're talking about your, you know, your battery being drained, what are some of the small steps or processes that you can engage in to help charge it up a little bit more? And you, you said it's not quite fake it till you make it, but that's certainly the way that we've presented that before in the past about body language 
we had examples of like they might have like Roy Keane or like other famous leaders in the the tunnel. What are they doing during that time? They're doing the same thing every week. They're standing, okay. they're staring down the tunnel. Their shoulders are back. They're in a sort of power position where the chest is up, and you might not be feeling confident at that time. I'm sure there was one time where he wasn't. Um, but doing that gets you in that zone where if I do this, it should help to generate more positive, more confident feelings. And again, the idea of when things are out of our control is when people, we start to panic. So it's about focusing on what we can control instead. So that's, yeah, I, I really like that idea. And I've certainly been in positions before where um, my battery's been fully charged. So that might mean I immediately go and speak to someone who I've I've not seen for a while. I'll be up talking to them after like ten like two minutes. If my battery's low, I'm gonna be a bit more slower and a bit sluggish and it might take me for them to come up to me or it might take me to sort of hide and just not go and speak to them. So yeah, I really I really like that idea. It resonates pretty well with me. Uh Tony, I don't know if you had any other thoughts on the, the confidence battery. No, it was really interesting. I think it was nice to hear a lot of references to some of the stuff that we'd covered um, with the young players last season. We're, we're now getting ready for, our, for our, uh, the new season. I think it's it's great that we can now obviously reference back to to a guest who's worked with you know so many different athletes and be like, look, it's not just us that are saying this. There are you know other professionals out there who've worked with very successful athletes that are, are doing the same thing. Um, you know. And, Brad's gonna laugh, but I always, I always say that faking it till you make it, it. There is a theory, and it's it's called embodied cognition, and I refuse to try and explain it because I'm not getting myself lost. But there is actually a science behind it, um, and it is really interesting how you know standing upright, shoulders back, um, or you know just where you're poising yourself, the way that perhaps you're communicating, making sure your voice is nice and loud, you're being heard in the team so you might be feeling quite valued to make sure that you're getting your voice out there these are all things that they build up and then have a big impact on, on your um play uh, and on how you're feeling um again as well you know doing the controllables a lot of young players especially uh, i'm thinking about strikers or maybe a defender a striker would think i need to score like a worldy goal to get my confidence up or a defender might be like oh, i've got to make that amazing goal line tackle but you know, actually, it's just the small things like creating, doing the right pass. Uh, you know, checking and communicating with that teammate that's beside you on the back line, or um, you know, who who's going. If you're in the middle of the park and you've got someone down the wing, it's having that communication and doing the small things that yeah, really build up and they're going to boost your confidence in the long run. So yeah, great to hear. Really, really, really nice. Yeah, and also just when you're talking there, it's like and it's football. It's a team sport, so you you should have other guys around you that you can draw up on. Like with some clients that might not work as well, but I'm sure there still is some sort of support system, whether that's coaching team, parents. So like confidence is like movable, but it's not fixed. Like, mm-hmm. so try, try and do some things to, to, you know, to change it rather than just sort of thinking that you're, oh, I'm not confident. That means I'm never going to make it. So yeah, interesting discussion, Louise, and uh, thanks very much for that. So interesting, you've watched in so many sports as well. You're going to do fine at C part, unlike. <laughs> um. Anyway, uh, so you spent some time recently, um, in the summer actually working on an international sporting event, uh, with a rugby team. Was that all quite as glamorous as it sounds? You know, national team event, working abroad, sports psychologist sounds pretty snazzy. 
yeah again I'd love to say yeah it was it was all amazing and it was a fantastic experience and I think every time I go away with a team it is an amazing opportunity and it's a fantastic time um to actually see athletes perform at a high level um and it is a, the team I was part of there was amazing and they had a fantastic um like approach already before I had even like met the team they already had some really key um values already established and a fantastic setup and I was totally embedded within the team from the day I met them so it was amazing um I would say anytime you travel with a team it's always very full-on the days are often very long so a typical day I would be up at like 6 a.m um head down to the pitches and they would have maybe three or four games in a day um so it would be pretty back to back and if you think in between that I would typically have some one-to-ones in the morning before we've even started um and then like when they're at the pitches in between every game, I probably would talk to one or two of the girls as well, um, which is a really fortunate position because actually they wanted to reach out. They wanted to get support, which is amazing. It's just a very full on environment. And um, of course, it was very, very warm out there. So you're managing that as well. Um, but I do think it is a very amazing environment. I think for me, Having learned from traveling with gymnastics as well, I've learned that actually being part of a team is more than being a sports psychology consultant or mental skills coach. It's actually being there for what they need you for at that time. And I know that people have varying um, views on that. But for me, like I was getting up and supporting the team manager with doing the food shop because that's what they needed. And nobody wanted to talk to me at 6 a.m. So I was like, well, I'll get involved and help where I can because actually it's going to make the team less stressed throughout the day. And that's very much my approach is that if I can support you and support the team to be the best version of themselves, I will help with whatever I can. Um, So, yeah, I would say it's definitely... um, your sleeves are rolled up and you're getting involved. It's very intense um, when you're away, but a really exciting opportunity. And they did amazing, which always makes it a really rewarding trip as well. Yeah, I think the role of the sports psych is so broad, something that we have mentioned before. I'm sure there's not job applications out there that say you're going to be helping out with the shopping. And I think for a while, <laughs> probably be like, nah, I'm not going to apply to that. Uh, but the role is... You know, it's just whatever you're needed. It's whatever, whatever the the people in charge see you fit in, whatever the, the team really needs you. And it's great to hear that you're helping out uh, and some stuff that's probably a wee bit outside of the role. I just wanted to pick up on, you mentioned like one-to-one stuff, because I think if there are any trainees that listen to this podcast, they would think, oh, like, like Louise was away doing this like trip with like a national team, like if I hear that, I think, all oh, right, she must have been doing these crazy like thought change intervention, thought stopping, you know, doing performance psychology with every athlete, doing big team things. Like, you know, what? How formal and structured were those sort of one to ones? And was there any group stuff that you did in there for the team as well? Yeah, I think it can vary depending on what team you're with. In the ideal world, you would have done workshops in the year building up to it. And when you went out there, you would just be there to provide kind of one-to-one support. Um, And when I'm out there, a lot of the time, um, it is actually just 
understanding what the individual needs in that moment and it's quite informal I find like you can go into it with a really structured approach if you want but actually a lot of the time you're getting hit by things that you weren't even prepared for or actually even if you prepare for it there's different elements that bother different individuals on different days um, so a lot of it I find is um, being there during games um, beforehand speaking to individuals who are nervous or struggling to manage pressure um, and they all have like personal things involved in that as well um, and what I find really interesting is actually how you support the coach and the coaches on the day of a competition um, and that is often very informal coaches coming up to you and speaking with you about how do they make decisions about who's selected and um, who's going to play a different game? So um, actually, they're more organic kind of conversations that you can't pre really prepare for. Yeah. Um, but you can have definitely some key tools up your sleeve because everybody wants a quick fix. When something goes wrong, they want you to have something there that can really help. Um, so that's something I've learned over the past few years is to really have that kind of quick fix in my toolbox just in case I need it. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting as well because my experience of going away as the psych, like the psych to events, is that it's it is more putting out fires. So ten minutes before a match or like half an hour, oh my god, like I'm so nervous, like I don't know what to do. Like then it's like, well, we don't have time to like do a workshop and all that on on this. So it's about, like you say, using any previous stuff that you've maybe done. And sort of using those sort of tools that you have up your sleeve to help players to to maybe relax or whatever it might be. Um, so that's interesting that it's kind of the same in my work uh, as well. Yeah, absolutely. Moving on then, Louise, um, you've also worked, another thing that you've done is in, uh, safeguarding uh, for a national sporting organisation in Scotland. So what does safeguarding actually involve? It's maybe a a kind of term some people have heard of and how do you how does that connect to looking after athlete well-being and safety for the governing body that you're working for yeah absolutely so safeguarding involves um keeping individuals in particular vulnerable adults and those under 18 safe in their sports so that involves making sure that all your coaches and support staff have like their child protection a pvg um all these dead like serious things but actually they're so important to show that you are a qualified coach that you are going to keep people safe um and I suppose, yeah, it's been really interesting working in safeguarding because it's opened this whole other side of it and actually how important it is to keep individuals safe in their sport. And often we receive cases that have happened. Um, usually it's mostly poor practice within sport, um, but it can obviously escalate to more serious situations. Um, and safeguarding is that area that that we have so that people can report issues um, and we can keep all sport in Scotland safe, um, which is really fantastic that we have. Um, and I suppose more specifically, I've been like supporting this team to do that and build policies and procedures and make sure that we can keep every team and every club safe. Um, but for me, I think in terms of my practice, what I've realised is that safeguarding isn't just this team's responsibility safeguarding is everybody's responsibility and especially I think in a role as a like sports psychology consultant and as a practitioner we often 
hear, see, and are exposed to different elements, whether that's safeguarding like from a coach or something that happens at home with a parent, it's our responsibility to be able to actually ask the individual if they're okay and identify that and report it in a way that's safe. And um, that's by no means saying that if you see anything that's, I suppose, bad, that the person's going to be in trouble. It's actually built to keep us as practitioners safe, the coaches safe and the individual, the child safe. Um, so I think it's a really helpful structure to have in sport and I hope an area that just continues to grow so that we never have any poor practice and any further issues in sport really. Yeah, that sounds like a really cool role in terms of, I've never been part of something that we are actually developing and building policies to keep people safe. I suppose, Tony, on the programme at the minute, we had a kind of exciting meeting with a, a governing body recently and they are sort of helping us to, I suppose, make everything more airtight in line with their own policies. So there might be actually scope for that type of work in the future. You know, the stuff around transitions can be quite sensitive as well. So safeguarding certainly comes into that so what are we doing to look after players when they're released like what are we doing in the lead up like when do we speak to them how do we speak to them what do we say to them so yeah I think that stuff's really important and it's in football something that is flagged up recently that there's not been enough duty of care under that uh, so it's interesting that you're putting your own policies into play there as well Tony I don't know if you had anything on that mate no, definitely. I think it's it's interesting to see. I think it's it's nice that obviously the governing body in question feels like our our uh, program is valuable enough that they want to ensure everything is in place for hopefully for it to grow and continue growing successfully. And as Louisa said, to make sure it's growing and is a safe environment for all players that are involved in it. Um, I think it's obviously crucial to highlight that there was there was no issues or serious issues flagged up when we had that meeting as well. So everything is. It's taken away nicely and you, the players that are listening, you're, you're in safe hands at the moment. Yeah. I think that's the beauty of safeguarding, right, is that actually you need to have it in place before any problems arise and that's when it's most effective is if you have it in place and the ability to report things effectively before problems arise, then that's the best place to be. We've all been drilled with the safeguarding stuff through our training and it does kind of open your eyes to when certain things happen within your sport. Luckily, I've never been in a position where I've had felt it necessary to refer on to anyone else. But it does make you more conscious of like language and things like that as well. Like, is it inclusive language or is there any sort of bullying going on or other biases at play kind of thing? So, and it's sometimes the most difficult thing going, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Like, I don't think you could be saying that, etc. Yeah. But as a sports psych, it's your duty of care. Um, and it's, it's just really interesting to to hear from someone who's on that side of things. So, yeah, thanks for sharing that again, Louise. Just as well, Brad, I think it... Sorry to cut across there, Louise. I think it's it's great as well that we, we've obviously undergone this training so that, you know, players who are listening, you can come up and approach us and have these conversations. You know, you can speak to your safeguarding officer that you're going to have at your academy or within your team because... We, we've had this training so we are able to give you that unbiased conversation and we will be open and, and honest with you um which is so important so you know never feel 
like oh, I don't know if I can bring this up to them because of this or that you know of course you can you can speak to us about it that's the whole point is that we're not going to sit there and, and judge you it's a we you know we're we're the people that you can turn to and have a completely open conversation with with, with no judgment yeah well said mate well said just looking towards the end of the podcast, Louise, there's a couple of questions that we like to ask our um, our guests. So, first of all, what are your top three tips for looking after your own well-being? Yeah, um, definitely getting outside, um, getting in fresh air or up a hill. I'm usually with my dog. It's probably my go-to first thing that I do. Um, and then with, I always like to exercise, like just to look after myself and actually just to give myself some headspace so um, that I have time for myself. So whether that's running, cycling, um, going to the gym, anything that I can do um, and fit into a day, I like to try and just do one little thing a day um, that will make me feel in a better headspace really. Um, and then the third thing that I really do think is important is just really connecting with people, whether that is making sure that every day I phone somebody um, or actually try and meet up with a friend or a family member and just to have that connection because I find actually that's what re-energizes my battery and allows me to then be able to do what I do. Yeah, that's a good point on connecting with people. Is, is that why you wanted to meet for a coffee yesterday so you could just feel so much better about yourself? Absolutely. Well, Thanks, Brad. I'm happy with that. I'm happy with that. Uh, and um, lastly, Louise, um, you've given some amazing tips already for our young academy players listening. So do you have anything else that you'd like to sign off with that you think that they should hear or could benefit from? Um, I suppose the last few things I'd say is that remember that confidence will always fluctuate, that you are doing well and you are normal, that this happens and to be kind to yourself, be kind that like don't be too critical in this moment that when you feel your confidence is low try to give yourself some support and build yourself back up because you're not always going to feel like this your confidence will build um and by doing that and pulling confidence from different areas of your life you will be able to be the best version of yourself and your confidence will build back up so it's only temporary that it will drop down i think that's always really worth remembering um and yeah, just connect with people. If you feel like you are struggling with your confidence and it has been going on for a bit longer, like chat to your friends and family. They will remind you why you should have confidence in what you're doing and how fantastic you are. And if you really then, I suppose, and not just really if you're struggling with it, I think in general, if you want to develop your skills and knowledge around confidence or anything else, um, to get in touch with a sports psychologist, because I think there's so much value, not just from a preventative point of view but actually developing yourself as an individual so yeah I would encourage to reach out for support where you can connect with individuals and to be kind to yourself because confidence will go up and down amazing thanks Louise Tony you got anything to wrap us up mate no great I thought that was brilliant um obviously yeah Louise sorry I couldn't meet you for the coffee yesterday so you'll stop with Brad instead that's all <laughs> next time <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, that's brilliant. Another great episode. I'm sure our listeners are taking loads away from that. I know I, I definitely have, especially the advice at the end. I think that's probably stuff that I could do a bit better as well. As I say, you know, we're not perfect as, as sports psychologists either. So, yeah, really great. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for everything, Louise. Um, any of our young players listening, 
the confidence battery might get chucked your way over the course of the next season <laughs> by me. So just just be ready for that. I'm sorry, Louise, unless you've uh, watermarked it or trademarked it. It's, <laughs> it's getting you. It's quite all right. Thank you very much for having me, guys. Well, Brad, that was another amazing episode. Loads to take away, but let's just get straight into it. And uh, what was your first key reflection and takeaway from this episode? Louise talked about loads of amazing stuff uh, on the episode, but I think the first point that really jumped out at me is, uh, to me, and it was really interesting, was when we discussed referees and the different physical and mental challenges that they have to face throughout a match you know Louise spoke about imagine being physically exhausted but your mind still has to be completely sharp and at 100% in order to make extremely difficult decisions especially when you're actually faced with conflict as well thinking about thousands of fans shouting at you it's um, it just provided perspective on how sports psychologists can really help referees and probably just good insight into how challenging it actually is to to be a referee something that I think we don't give enough thought to yeah 100% agree there man um, really interesting bit of insight into you know what it is that referees go through I think I feel quite privileged because actually when I was doing my I think undergrad I had a guest lecturer come in and it was a referee who'd um, and he spoke about the I think it was a rugby referee and he spoke about um, the support that he got um, through working with a sports psychologist and how that really impacted his decision making and improved his performance as a referee so yeah great insight and again gives our players something different to think about on the pitch but you know not only are you tired and you're trying to perform at your best but obviously you know the referee's got some big decisions to make on that pitch so um, perhaps just being a little bit mindful of, of the ref and uh, of course, you want the decision to go your way, but just not forgetting that when perhaps this decision might go against you. What was another key part that you really liked in the episode? I also really enjoyed the conversation on confidence and what Louise implements to help her clients and athletes to be more confident. I really like that idea of the confidence battery, and I could certainly relate to that in certain social situations that have been outside of sport when that confidence battery is low so it's about recognising that and also trying to think about how we can charge ourselves up to be more confident I think that's an example that would really resonate well with the players in a, in a sporting context what small processes can you get involved in in order to build your confidence up and the idea that confidence will fluctuate it's not something that's fixed it's something that we can develop over time so it's nothing to worry about if your confidence is low in one given moment there's always room to improve that uh, over time yeah 100% that part around confidence and the conversation we had there was brilliant I think obviously we reflected during the episode a little bit but yeah so interesting so crucial as well I think that players it's so crucial for players to know that you know confidence is going to fluctuate throughout your period of time and in life in general not just in in sport and football so yeah that was really brilliant I think for me as well what was so interesting was when she was speaking about her experience of working with different athletes of different genders um, to work with males versus female athletes and how um, different her approach tended to be she said obviously not all the time because it is very subject to the individual it, it does change based off the individual which she found sort of in general um, there was a bit of a difference 
between her approach um, of the two I thought that was you know, a really interesting piece of insight and something perhaps not for the players but perhaps for the um, other trainee sports psychologists listening to this to take away from it um, yeah what was your sort of final reflection you wanted to share lastly was a conversation that we had around safeguarding and poor practice I found it really interesting getting to chat to someone who is on that other side of those safeguarding policies and actually trying to put them into place. And I'm sure that that will do a lot for Louise's practice as well when she's actually working with athletes and maybe a team context because she's been on that kind of the side of it where she's been developing them for a governing body. She'll take her learnings from that into her own practice in terms of she'll be able to identify when there are safeguarding issues that might be present and she'll be completely clued up on the processes that she has to go through in order to report that correctly. So it was just really cool and interesting to hear about someone who's putting kind of safety measures in place in order to best look after athletes on a national level. Yeah, fantastic again, really brilliant insight into you know how adaptive applied sports psychology can be in the different areas of sport and supporting athletes that you can get into and so yeah fantastic really good point that you made there at the end Brad and uh, hopefully everyone else has enjoyed this episode as much as we have and uh, looking forward to the next one